Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 113 of the PA Turnpod. I am Rob. Today on this beautiful Saturday afternoon, I am joined today by nobody at all. It's just me, myself, and I. Uh, this will be my first and probably last solo pod for the foreseeable future. There's a lot to get to this weekend. My co-host, Joel, is doing fine. He'll be back tomorrow when we record another one in long form. Uh, I'll be with you for about an hour today. I got a lot of interesting content for you, a lot of interesting topics, and some big news in baseball, football, and I guess more of the same in basketball. Uh, just to le- uh, let you guys in, pull down the curtain a little bit, we will be recording regularly going forward again, um, more similar to our 2021 and 22 schedules. Uh, for now, it's just kind of been hectic with, um, you know, the whole summer. Uh, his his job is very um, – it changes very often how like what his hours are and what his days off are. Mine stays pretty much the same, but it's been a busy summer, obviously with the wedding. And then uh, I like last week I was away for a honeymoon. So we're, we're pretty much both back uh, full time going forward today, Saturday. I'm going to record one today. Uh, tomorrow he will be back and we will do a, a regular podcast in long form, uh, a little bit of like football predictions and everything. Uh, then Monday we'll do a little bit more previewing for the NFL season. And then next week, uh, I guess this upcoming week <clears throat> will be the um, the big one, uh, kind of like an anniversary show <clears throat> as the PA Turnpod turns two. Uh, remember our first episode, a lot of you have been with us from the beginning, which we really appreciate. First show we did was the 2021 NFL prediction show where we did a lot of uh, overs and unders. We did some passing leaders and things like that, uh, division winners, playoff teams. So it'll be kind of a callback to that. Um, I'll get into it later on toward the end, what the plans are. Uh, as far as the podcast goes, there's also a mailbag question here. Somebody asked me about uh, growing the podcast, which I'll get to momentarily. In the meantime, uh, this is episode 113. I'll be with you for about an hour or so. Hopefully, um, if I can shut myself up by two o'clock, that'd be great. Um, you guys might call it a solo pod. I'm going to call this one my wife's worst nightmare, which is uh, Rob talking unimpeded for about an hour and... We'll get going. So we're at the tail end of August, the month that I deem to be probably the most boring month in terms of uh, sports fandom. Uh, if you're a person like myself in years past where there was really nothing going on in your life uh, in August, sports and everything made it a lot more boring because the only thing you really have going for you is the beginning of the month is around the uh, the trade deadline time for the MLB. But, you know, basketball and hockey are still a little bit of ways away. The team USA in basketball is keeping, you know, basketball kind of relevant in the U S right now, but there's nothing happening in hockey, just like random fourth liners are signing everywhere. Uh, minor league players are signing. So there's not much going on until camp begins in a few weeks. Uh, basketball, same thing aside from team USA playing in the FIBA, uh, the world championships, there's really not much happening. Um, you usually have one or two guys every year that will have trade requests right now. You have the James Harden sweepstakes, which is really just, him and Maury in a little bit of a staring contest and the Damian Lillard stuff, which continues to confuse me um, as a lot of you probably are confused too. He um, for the longest time did not want out, didn't want to run from the grind, wanted to stay in Portland. All of a sudden now he wants out, but he only wants to go to Miami, but there's other teams rumored for him. Uh, I don't understand it. Uh, there's a mailbag question actually on here about Harden, which I will, um, which I'll get to, which kind of ties into Damian Lillard. Um, but you know, before I go off on a tangent, this is probably the most boring month, but it's been kind of carried by the Phillies and a little bit of this, you know, preseason, all the the nonsense going on in the NFL with guys holding out or guys that want contracts or guys that have just been recently traded. Um, but, you know, August is generally the most boring month in sports. We are finally starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I know preseason and training camp occur in August. There's really not much to speak of there. 
I think a lot of people that are really into preseason are not truly into it. They're just kind of grasping for anything. It's almost like when you go to Walmart and you're looking for a bag of Doritos and you find the great value corn chips. It's not the same thing. You're kind of pretending it is, but it really isn't. Anybody that watches preseason and enjoys it is a lunatic. Although uh, football being back is very exciting. Today is the beginning of week zero in NCAA football. Uh, the biggest game, I believe, is Navy-Notre Dame. Uh, that should be kicking off, actually, probably by the time I'm finished recording. Uh, but, you know, you have week zero in college football. Week one will be next week. You have the NFL coming back in about about two weeks. Um, basketball and hockey training camps will kick off soon. So we're starting to get to that time of the year where uh, we're really in the, I think, it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's bordering on the uh, sports equinox time of the year, which is where we get all four sports at once. Uh, we're getting toward that. We're through the boring times. And, you know, football will be back soon. Hockey and basketball will be back soon. And then baseball will really, really heat up as we approach the pro, uh, the postseason. So um, on today's episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Phillies and the Cardinals last night. I'm not going to go into long form because we will be kind of recapping the, you know, the whole week and a half of the Phillies tomorrow on the episode with Joel and myself. I don't want to take anything away from uh, the back and forth. I think a lot of things that I came up with for today's episode are really more solo topics. <clears throat> a couple of things that will, you know, there will be some overlap, a few things that I'll touch on today that we'll also talk about tomorrow uh, because I think some things that, you know, you need a little back and forth for, uh, but I'll talk a little bit about the Phillies and Cardinals last night, some interesting statistics. Um, I'll kind of go through what's happening in sports, uh, a lot of random things, a lot of, you know, abstract thoughts, um, we have some mailbag questions. I have one, two, three, four, five, five mailbag questions here. Uh, one of them was very thought provoking and I did a little bit of research on it. So I, I came prepared for that. I looks like three more questions have come up on the Instagram this morning. Um, I will also answer those. So eight mailbag questions. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the ballpark tour that I went on in uh, California with my wife on our, uh, our honeymoon um, in Los Angeles and San Francisco and up and down California. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that as well with Joel, as I'm sure he has a lot of interesting thoughts and questions. Um, and then I'll get into some future plans for uh, some ballpark information and stuff, uh, some like recaps going forward. Um, we'll do a sports roundup. Only a couple topics there, but I think uh, I came up with a few good ones that we can you know, provoke some thoughts with. And I'll get all, all of your opinions on the Instagram after this. So let's start off with um, sports birthdays today. How apropos, today is James Harden's 34th birthday as he approaches his now, what, sixth team? Uh, OKC Rockets, um, Thunder Six. Uh, well, he'll be uh, on his fifth team by his 35th birthday, most likely. And it could be in China, as rumors have swirled about him leaving the United States to go play in China because he'd rather play there than play for Maury. Uh, David Price today turns 38, uh, World Series champion with the Red Sox. And I think he opted out of the Dodger year, but it, he might get a ring, who knows? Jamal Lewis, really good running back from the Ravens, turns 44 today. And Ricky Botalico, uh, former closer for the Phillies, uh, now is a uh, NBC Sports uh, TV, I guess, analyst or whatever on the Phillies pre- and post-game show, and he does a radio show in Philly as well. So they were the four most relevant birthdays I could find in terms of the sports world. I'm sure there are other guys and gals out there in the entertainment world that will celebrate birthdays today, but I don't really care. Uh, I want to start off before we jump into the mailbag. Uh, Joel will be able to offer more of a appropriate tribute on the episode we do tomorrow or Monday. But um, I wanted to wish uh, I wanted to share my sympathies with the family of uh, Bray Wyatt, who passed away just a few days ago. Thirty six years old took me by complete surprise. I know he had been battling a heart issue 
and it was uh, supposedly um, further complicated by uh, about with COVID uh, with Bray Wyatt. Uh, Wyndham Rotunda is his uh, real name. I believe he also went by Husky Harry was one of his uh, stage names in uh, WWE. So I want to wish him well or wish his family well. Uh, they did a tribute show last night on SmackDown for him. Um, I don't follow the product as well as I used to, but I try to keep up here and there with WrestleMania coming. So I've been trying to pay attention a little bit more, but uh, there was a, a couple of really good promos last night, some good matches and tribute to him. Joel will be able to offer more of a, uh, an appropriate um tribute to him on our next episode but i wanted to make sure i got that out there and uh share my uh, my thoughts and uh, sympathies with uh, his family um i'm sure they're not listening but uh very upsetting 36 years old uh, a whole life ahead of him i believe he had a, at least one child so that's a uh, very very upsetting and uh, one of his best friends also passed away about a year ago so it might have been two years ago i forget exactly um but uh that will be tied up a little bit more uh, appropriately tomorrow by Joel. Uh, let's jump into the mailbags. <clears throat> so I have five mailbag questions here. Some of them came through on Instagram, actually eight, because three more came through on Instagram this morning. But uh, a few of these came through on Instagram. A couple of them were, uh, you know, gifted to me by coworkers that uh, wanted to help out with some content for the podcast. So number one, and friends as well. So number one, uh, this is courtesy of my buddy, Andrew. Uh, what was the most out of world, out of this world experience on your honeymoon? Um, so, I'll give you more of a recap later on, but um, went through California, went to all five ballparks in California, saw the Giants, the Dodgers, saw the Dodgers again, uh, Padres, Angels, um, A's, and kind of did that all in the course of about 10 days. Uh, also hit Universal, hit Disney, Disneyland, uh, San Diego Zoo, hit a lot of uh, three different beaches. So we really packed a lot of stuff into one week. I have a million pictures and videos, which i uh, very thrilled about. It. I think the the one thing that was really cool that I can remember was uh, going to Disney and Universal. They were very, very. I, I'd never been to anything like that. I've never been on a vacation outside of you know uh, going to the shore. So this is a total, a totally different experience for myself. Uh, my wife has been to Disney World three or four times. Uh, this is her first uh, time going to Disneyland. However, uh, we had a blast. Um, I'm not really into the Disney stuff, but for an experience like that i really got into it so i thought it was really cool um the the people there that are dressed as the characters are uh, as far as they're concerned not actors they're actually the characters which was really interesting it's almost like a utopian era, uh, universe almost because nobody's upset everybody's happy everybody's very complimentary there were a few people that um, a few of the characters or whatever that asked us why we were there and so on honeymoon oh so that's so great etc cetera, etc cetera. a uh, universal was actually a lot cooler for me uh, i enjoyed both uh, very much but universal was more up my alley they had a simpsons area uh there was like a minion area a mario area so that was really really cool um we got to go to moe's pub went to crusty burger went to uh quickie mart which was really cool uh so that was very cool the um the most out of country experience had to be the angels game because uh i think i underestimated how big of a japanese contingent attends these games um i told my friends the other day you know shohei otani is He's like the Coca-Cola of Japan. Like he is like the thing they have a giant um, on the screen in right center field at angel stadium. They have a giant cologne that he endorses, which sounds like a Japanese cologne. Um, almost the entire section we were in was Japanese people. Um, I granted we were up at the top, maybe down low. They're not too many of them because uh, these might be newer season ticket holders or maybe just like stragglers that came in, but almost everybody there was in Otani apparel, um, very Japanese contingent. He is a hero there. And I, I grossly underestimated how big of a player and how big of a fan all of these people are of him, which was really cool. 
Um, again, I'll dive a little bit more into the ballparks later, and we'll talk more tomorrow too uh, with Joel. So I don't want to dive too much in, but that was very cool. The the beaches were also pretty sweet because they weren't uh, they weren't gross like Jersey beaches, so it almost felt like I was in a movie. Um, and seeing a couple of the sets, this will be my last portion of this answer. Seeing a couple of the sets of uh, of movies that were actually filmed uh, in Universal Studios in Hollywood were really cool. They have um, they still have them set up because we did a bus tour. There was, um, I believe, the clock. Or I'm sorry, the uh, the city hall from Back to the Future. They showed a clip of it as we were approaching it, and we got to see, you know, exactly the angle they shot from, with where the like where the bus stopped and everything. The uh, the young lady that was guiding the tour was telling us about how they had to make it look older for some of the scenes. Um, there's like a like a New York Street, quote unquote, in uh, Universal Studios where they have like large buildings and it almost looks like you're in New York. She said. Um, the, the tour guide said, you know, anytime you are in a movie or watching a movie and they're filming something in New York, this is essentially where they are. Uh, we saw the Jaws Beach, which I thought was really cool. Um, basically, that whole setup, we saw the water. They had a shark there. Uh, we saw the shops and everything. There was, the I think, the lifeguard stand. We went through there. It's a lot smaller than I realized because they make it look huge on, on the big screen. But that was very, very cool. Um and then uh, War of the Worlds, I believe, was the other movie. I, I saw the movie when I was a kid. I don't remember much about it, but we got to drive through the one street um, where I guess there was like a plane that crashed and some of the houses were burned and everything. It looked awesome. There was, you know, car sirens going off, uh, mailboxes destroyed. That, I have so many pictures of it. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Um, and I'm not one that really gets into the whole, you know, the Hollywood movie thing because I'm not a big movie guy aside from a few horror films. And, you know, just finding movies to watch on day night. But I, I thought that whole experience was really cool. I, I was really into uh, Universal. And uh, had we not had the Angels game that night, I would have wanted to stay a few more hours and kind of check things out even a second time. Uh, the rides were cool, too. Um, I liked that Universal had some simulation rides <clears throat> where you kind of sit in a chair that uh, feels almost like a car or a uh, feels like a, some sort of an automobile in you know, for instance, the Simpsons one, we were in Springfield and, it, you know, they had a, something showing on the screen. I thought that was really cool. They had a Harry Potter one. I'm not even a Harry Potter guy. And I thought this was really, really cool. And then in uh, Disneyland, they had a um, I believe they had a couple Star Wars things that were really cool, too. You got to drive the Millennial Falcon, which I thought was pretty sweet. They uh, there were six of us in a group. Two of us were the drivers. I think I was the one going left and right. Um, the person next to me was going uh, forward and backwards or up and down, maybe. The people behind us were shooting things. I thought some of those simulation rides and experiences were really cool. And then we had um, we had dinner on a rooftop, which was really cool. Very expensive, more expensive than it should have been for the food we got. But we got to see the fireworks. It was a uh, it was a beautiful night. Um, mailbag too. So a coworker of mine asked, "What was the best experience on the trip? How was the time difference?" Uh, I won't share the name just in case he doesn't want it to be out there. But uh, this kind of ties into the first one. Uh, Universal was really cool. The set of Jaws was probably my favorite. Uh, like the set of Jaws and the back to the future city hall, like all of that uh, touring the uh, the movie sets was probably my favorite part of the trip. Uh, the, the beaches were really relaxing. There were not that many people. Uh, they were a little chilly, but that was probably some of my favorite stuff. Uh, you know, I, uh, baseball games aside, because I think if you've been to one, you've been to a million there. There's a little bit of a difference in the experience in each of these ballparks, which I'll get to. But Aside from that, I really enjoyed just I enjoyed just being away. Honestly, I like going to the shore for a weekend and just kind of forgetting about life. This was really cool because it's the longest vacation I've taken as an adult, which was, you know, a week plus two weekends. So I think just in general, the whole thing was it was just very fun. 
Uh, time difference. So the time difference really didn't hit me as hard as it, uh, you would think. We landed in San Francisco at nine and we came home at uh, two o'clock, but the, the time difference wasn't too bad. We went to sleep pretty late the first night, uh, which I guess realistically would have been like four in the morning here. But um, toward the end of the trip, when we went to the San Diego Zoo on Wednesday, Disneyland Thursday, uh, Universal slash Angels game Friday, and then we had to take a flight both Saturday and Sunday morning. So we flew from, San, uh, from L.A. to San Fran and then San Fran home. Um, th- uh, all of those days we were up at, you know, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning to get started for the day. Uh, so that was that kind of reset my internal clock because I tend to get up at 7, 7.30 here. So that was basically 7.30 here every day when we were getting up. So my internal clock was not so much affected. Hers wasn't either because she had to be up early the next day um, after the trip ended. But I think uh, the, the time difference was a little bit – I was a little concerned about that because I didn't want to come home and be super tired um, at, or you know not be able to fall asleep at a correct time. But I think waking up early the last three or four days of the trip really, really helped us. Uh, breaking news on the podcast, the Eagles have released uh, Ian Book. Not, uh, not surprised there. All right, number three, this is more of a sports question. Would you rather be a wildcard team or one of the two top seeds with a bye in MLB postseason? Uh, this is from Brian. This came through on Instagram earlier in the week. Um, so I would probably rather be a wildcard team. I think the Phillies right now, and I believe the Rays are the number one wildcard in the AL. Those are the two teams I would run to be. Uh, you're kind of in the driver's seat because you are, one, you're the hottest wildcard team, most likely. You're the hottest wildcard team, especially with the way the two leagues are so jumbled together. You could argue that the second wild card of the NL might be a hotter team than the Phillies because there's a four or five team just cluster of teams there with Cincinnati, Arizona, the Giants, uh, even Miami is in there too, and the Cubs. So you have to be the hottest team to get into the postseason because it's unlikely four or three or four other teams are also just going to fall off a cliff while you just kind of go 500 the, the rest of the way. I personally would like to be the number one wild card. I know last year that didn't work out so hot for – the Mets, the Mets were the top wild card in the uh, NL. They w- they were the only wild card series that actually went to three games, though. Um, I want to be the wild card because I don't want that buy. I, as much as it would help a team like the Phillies, where Aaron Nola, Zach Wheeler, Ranger Suarez, Walker, all these guys are probably throwing more innings than they ever have. Even Lorenzen too, and Chris Sanchez if he stays healthy the rest of the season. So the rotation will be taxed by season's end. However, I think that that couple of days off really does take a toll on your ball club because you're not used to staying in the rhythm. You also don't know who you're playing for a couple of days. You know, last year was um, <clears throat> the top wild card in the AL, I believe, was – I want to say it was the Ray- – oh, no, I'm sorry, not the Rays. Um, the heck was it? Uh, I think it was Toronto. Toronto was the top wild card in the American League, and they wound up playing – Seattle was the hottest team in baseball, but they – if you look last year, uh, three of the four teams that were, you know, that had buys got bounced pretty, you know, effectively um, in the NL. I mean, the Braves lost a four to the Phillies, lost in four to the Phillies in the NLDS. Um, they, they split at home and then lost both on the road. Uh, the Dodgers, same thing. They split at home, lost both on the road to the Padres. They lost in four. The Astros were <clears throat> red hot, so they kind of blew through the Mariners and then they um, swept the Yankees. But they they were the, the outlier. They also wound up winning the championship. So they, I think, are the exception to many rules in baseball. Um, I don't mean that uh, figuratively in the, because they cheated, but I think they are the exception to a lot of rules because they develop and they just have such a great team. And then the Yankees got taken to the brink with Cleveland. Uh, they lost 
if you remember, they lost game two at home and then they lost game four. I'm sorry. Yeah, they lost two, game two at home. And they lost game four on the road. Uh, the Oscar Gonzalez walk off off the middle. Um, they they almost lost. I mean, they got a couple of big home runs early in game five from Stanton and Judge. But otherwise, they were they were on the ropes and then they got swept by the Astros. So th- that's a weird one because the Yankees toward the second half of the season kind of coasted because of how good they were before the all-star break. You know, they were what 45 and 15 at one point or 60 and 20. They were the first team, I think, to, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, and 50 wins, and then really slowed down toward the end because of injuries. And they made a couple bad moves at the deadline, bringing in Montas and Efros and guys that really just didn't help the team at all. And they really didn't have a left fielder all season long once Aaron Hicks stopped playing well and they got rid of Gallo. That was a weird one. But I would rather be the wild card. I'd rather be the top wild card. One, because you don't have to travel right away. Two, you kind of know who you're playing for a week because you can go into that wild card series. Let's say the Phillies, for instance, are the top wild card. They know exactly who they're playing because it's the team right beneath them, and they know exactly where they will play if they win their series. So they know they're getting either the Dodgers or the Braves, whereas the Braves and Dodgers, they're sitting back wondering, wondering, wondering. They have four teams they might play. Um, So that's what I would prefer. I know a lot of people out there would just like to take the buy in football. That seems to make more of a difference. Then in baseball, the buys in football seem to almost always breed uh, or yield uh, Super Bowl contenders. But I think in baseball, it's all it's all about how hot you are, not necessarily how good of a regular season you had. Uh, mailbag number four. Uh, this is from Jared. What what do you guys think will happen with James Harden? I really don't know. Um, my best inclination is it's not nothing will happen with Harden unless uh, Damian Lillard is moved first. I think they need him to set the market a bit. I think some of the teams that think they are in on both, although it seems like Lillard is dead set on going to Miami, so there are probably some teams out there that think they can get either one of them. Maybe the Knicks, maybe the Bulls, maybe some of these teams, maybe even the Hawks, I don't know. Teams that are probably going to strike out on Dame Lillard, might be in on Harden. And even if Harden only wants to go to LA, Maury can, you know, use a little bit of the leverage gained by having more teams in on Harden to at least get a better package from Los Angeles. So I think nothing will happen with Harden until Lillard is moved. Um, I believe if I'm not mistaken, I have to double check this. The first game after the trade deadline for Miami is Portland. I think I remember seeing something about that or maybe one of the holidays, uh, like MLK Day or something, they play each other. So I think the NBA thinks something might happen midseason with uh, Damian Lillard. So it, it, my best guess is even if Harden sits out, which I think is, uh, I think it's 50-50 he plays and 50-50 he sits out, there's a chance he maybe does what he did in Brooklyn and Houston where he just plays and waits to get moved uh, because he understands that you know if he wants to get a max, he's got to play at some point. Uh, he also can't sit out the full season. Otherwise, the Sixers can block his ability to go someplace else because of a new wrinkle in the CBA, which I I don't know how likely it is that they would do that because they don't want to, you know, make it so that free agents in the future don't want to come here because they did that to Harden. But I think uh, my best guess with James Harden is it'll take a Damian Lillard trade first before he is moved. And I think that'll be closer to the trade deadline. Um, if not, it's possible that it doesn't, nothing happens this season. But I, I think it's highly unlikely Harden is traded before the first game of the season. Um that's my opinion. I'm interested to see what Joel thinks about these two questions tomorrow when I speak to him, uh, when we're back at full strength. And then uh, I, I, let's go into the Instagram questions first, because mailbag five leads me into a really interesting topic. 
Um, I haven't read these. I have two questions here. What's a sport highlight that still gives you chills when you think about it? This is a good one. I, I, I purposely didn't read the Instagram questions from today because I wanted to get a more organic response. Um, as far as chills, I, I get a lot from the Philly sports stuff. Um, the Bryce Harper walk up in game three of the World Series when um, you can hear the PA announcer, Dan Baker, say his name. You can hear his walk-up music. You see the fans going nuts. And then the first pitch of the bat, he hits a bomb to right field. That that will forever give me chills. I think the um, th there's a there's something later I'm going to talk about uh, Philly highlight that I I will I'll I'll touch back on this topic when I talk about it later because it fits into a top five I'm doing later. Uh, the Shane Victorino Grand Slam because I was there. That was the first big moment I've ever been in attendance for um, in you know a playoff scenario for the Phillies. Um, there's some flyers highlights that really get me going. The, the Embiid windmill, I think is the, the peak of my fandom. It was the peak of my fandom in Philly sports at one point as an adult. Anyway, that was one of the first, play that was the first playoff game. Uh, that was the second playoff game I ever spent my own money on, uh, going to that game, game three with my wife, but girlfriend at the time, game three against Toronto. We were working part-time. I was just starting to work full-time, mustered up $125, go to that game. The Sixers blew out the Raptors. I was just floating the rest of the next couple of days and then they blew that Sunday game. Um Philly special obviously gives you chills. Uh, as far as like other mo like uh, non-Philly moments, I think the the first one that came to mind for me for non-Philly moments was uh this is kind of a sad moment but a really cool moment when uh the the first game that the Miami Marlins played following the passing of Jose Fernandez, uh D Gordon hit a leadoff home run it was his first of the year. I thought that just gave me like he said it was like an out-of-body experience for him. It was his first of the year. He wasn't really a power hitter. It was like August, September time. So it was late in the season. It's not like he hit his first and it was like April 10th. It, it was, a you know, that was a big moment. Um, there's so many walk-offs, like the Luis Gonzalez walk-off to win the World Series in 01 against the Yankees comes to mind. Um, there's so much. Uh, the Angels throwing the combined no-hitter after Tyler Skaggs passed away while all wearing Tyler Skaggs jerseys and then putting them down on the mound after the game was that is it. That's a tearjerker. Um, and then uh, one that comes to, there's another one, a hockey one that most people won't know. Uh, Paul Correa in, I think the 2001 Stanley cup finals got injured, came back, scored a goal. And uh, the announcer, Gary Thorne had an amazing call on that uh, off the floor on the board was a big one. And I'll, I'll tie a bow with the Delman young three run double in the 2012 playoffs, or it might've been, I'm sorry, 2004. No, it was 2012. 2012 playoffs against the Tigers. First pitch of the at-bat, three-run score. Uh, Hardy, Cruz, and uh, Pierce. Uh, that place is rocking. I cannot wait to see the Orioles in the playoffs because that place gets loud. And that's another thing I want to talk about later with the California ballparks, the fans. But that's uh, those are some moments that give me chills every time I see them or think about them. Uh, what was the first sporting event that got that you – I'm sorry. What was the first sporting event you remember that got you hooked? This is a fantastic one. Uh, more. So I, I've always been into sports, and I don't remember too much when I was a kid of um, my sports fan. It was always just there because I went to games with my parents and everything. When I was very, very young, I think we went to an Eagles blowout of the, uh, of the Cowboys. I think it was like 44 to 6 or something. They blew the Cowboys out. That was the first Eagles game I remember going to. Uh, the first Eagles game that really got me hooked probably would have been somewhere in 2004. I think it was the first 
preseason game. They showed it on CBS. Jim Nance was there. And the first play of the game was an 81-yard touchdown pass to T.O. That kind of got me into football, like, forever. Uh, the thing that got me into hockey, I would say, had to be probably the 06 playoffs when Peter Forsberg went around the net three or four times and there was a wide-open guy for a goal. Uh, that was kind of when I realized, you know, Flyers fans are pretty nuts. The 04 playoff run I was too young for, but I remember pieces of it. I just wasn't as big of a hardcore fan at that point. Uh, the the first moment that I that I remember ever watching in sports was the step over from AI. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, that game, I would I would go out to the backyard and reenact the entire overtime. My favorite number growing up was ninety four because it was that that was what the game was tied at going into overtime of game one of the uh, 01 final. So. Uh, the Iverson step over game. Eric Snow hit a really huge shot toward the end. Rajah Bell had a big layup. Uh, Matumbo missed both free throws going overtime. I don't think there was any scoring for like a minute and a half toward the end of that game or at the end of regulation of that game. And then they, they won late. Um, and I remember, I think it was, I should remember this better because it was on TV not that long ago with the, uh, the AI documentary that they showed or the 01 documentary they showed. I'm almost positive when they started the interview with AI. He said the first thing that came out of his mouth is Ty Lue was holding me the whole game. <laughs> so AI was cool. Um, that was probably the first sports moment that I truly remember that is just embedded in my brain. The step over. I didn't understand the significance of it. I didn't understand the disrespect of it because I was also five years old at the time. But that was a big moment for me. And then last mailbag question. This is uh, looks like a cut off. Um, all right. Um, I don't want to respond on the air and wait, you know, a minute or two to get an answer. But this one looks like it was cut off. So who is this? Um, all right. So I don't know who this person is, but somebody re re responded to the PA Turnpod story that I posted this morning uh, asking for mailbag questions. Send your mailbag questions here. Not, they don't necessarily have to be sports related. Ask anything. Um, this person who, so for the PA Turnpod has about maybe 125 followers on Instagram. I, I, don't have it loaded right now. Most of them are Joel's people. Most of them are mine. Um, and, um, and by the way, follow us pa.turnpod on Instagram. This person, <laughs> I don't, because Joel doesn't have an Instagram anymore. I don't know if this person knows him, but I have no mutuals with this person. They don't have their real name in their bio. So um, something with a K and an X here. Um, all it says is what is the Phillies? Um, the Phillies is a baseball team. So that's your answer. Um, all right, next. Uh, this comes from Fireman Joe, one of my best friends, the best man at my wedding. This is a really interesting thought-provoking question that I want to dive into a little bit more when we get to the Shohei Otani stuff. Um, given the rise of number of pitchers requiring Tommy John surgery, with some getting it a second time, and I'll throw in there a guy almost got it a third time, do you think the owners or players or both will attempt to decrease the number of games on the schedule per season during the next round of CBA negotiations. This is courtesy of my buddy, Joe. Um, he is a big sports guy like myself, and he is a very, we have a lot of thought provoking text conversations. I would love to get him on the pod at some point to hear his thoughts on uh, you know, college football, baseball, whatever. So this is really interesting because I have a feeling this was discussed the last round of CBA negotiations, which was uh, right before the 2022 season. If you remember last year, there was a little bit of a lockout. Season started about a week later than it was supposed to. I personally do not believe either side will ever do it unless they can find a way to supplement that money because they're going to lose, you know, two weeks worth of games. The only way that I see it happening, I have a solution here that would probably never happen, but the only way I see it happening 
is they would need to add playoff games in order to supplement the loss of the income and the revenue they're going to lose from, you know, cutting out 10 to 12 regular season games. I think personally they should go to 150 games maybe. Even if you go to 154 and you get rid of eight games, I would keep the same time frame for where the season begins to where it ends. I would still go from whatever April 1st to October 1st, but give them more off days in between there, as opposed to some people have suggested just shortening the season, but also proportionally shorting the, uh, the time frame that they play in. So go from April 1st to like September 15th or whatever. I think I would give them more off days. Um, some days where there's only two or three games, like Mondays, um, always give teams off when they have a primetime game the night before and they have to fly somewhere else, especially those Sunday night games. Uh, a lot of fans don't love those games. I enjoy watching them, but I don't enjoy attending the Sunday night games. I've only been to one. I'm sorry, I've only been to two in the last few years. The uh, the 19 game against the 2019 game against the Braves, third game of the season, and then a few years uh, last year against the Cardinals. But that uh, July 4th was the next day, so it was you know justifiable. Um, I think. So I actually came up with an interesting um, expansion slash um, relocation and kind of realignment for MLB. Um, so I did this a few months ago when I saw something on Twitter and uh, my friends and I kind of came up with an idea. So there, there's talks of moving. Uh, obviously, the A's are going to move to Vegas. It's possible the Rays build a new ballpark in actual Tampa Bay as opposed to St. Pete. Um, calling the Phillies, the Philadelphia Phillies, be like playing in Ben Salem and calling them the Phillies. It's a half hour drive. Both people in the city don't want to go. And in the Rays case, not many people want to go inside to watch baseball. Um so there's also talks of the two main markets they would put teams in. Charlotte is likely to get a team if they expand, and Nashville, Tennessee would likely get a team if they expand. So I suggested this is a – I'm going to kind of clean it up a little bit because I put this together on the fly a few months ago. In fact, I have the note on my phone. Um, this was put together on uh, February 16th. Uh, my friends and I had an interesting discussion about this. I'm happy it's kind of making its way back here. So this would also tie into shortening the season and new teams means new revenue streams. So I think uh, I'm going to talk about the Tommy John thing later because I have a long um, piece on it. I would break major league baseball when they get to 32 teams with the two, uh, you know, the two more teams, I would break it into either four divisions or eight divisions and have either eight teams in four divisions or four teams in eight divisions. So, what I came up with here, this is my four division um, format. So I would have the Metro slash Northeast division. You can call it whatever you just call it the East division. If you want uh, the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Orioles, the Mets, Phillies, the Nationals, the Jays, and the Pirates all kind of clustered together a little bit less travel uh, for all those teams. You would play all the, I'll get to the schedule in a moment. Then I have the Pacific slash West division. You can maybe break that into two different, whatever uh, you could have the, you know, the AL Metro and the NL Metro, whatever you want to do. Um, and then the AL West or the NL West. Dodgers, Angels, Mariners, Diamondbacks, Giants, Padres, Rockies, A's. Even if the A's move to Vegas, it's not that far from where Oakland is. Uh, that would be my, you know, my West Coast division. You can split that in half if you want. Have an AL and an NL. I don't care. Then I would have the Southeast division. This, I guess, could just be like the South division, NL South, NL, uh, AL South. Uh, again, I'm just going with my four division format. I would have the Braves, Marlins, Rays, the team in Charlotte, the Astros, Rangers, Cardinals, and then the team in Nashville all in one division. The only kind of weird thing here is you have to split the Cardinals and the Royals up that are both in um, uh, Missouri. But the, this was the one weird kind of way I couldn't really fit these two divisions to 
be perfectly clustered. Um, but that would be my Southeast division. Then I'll have my Midwest division. Uh, Cubs, Guardians, Brewers, White Sox, Reds, Tigers, Royals, and Twins. As you can tell, most of these divisions are just combinations of the East uh, in both the AL and NL, the West and AL and NL, South, whatever, um, and the Central. But what I would do is I would shorten the schedule to 150 games, keep it over the same time range. So beginning of um, April to the end of September would be the time frame. 150 game schedule, more balanced, which is kind of how they do it now where everybody plays one another. Divisions don't mean as much now that there are more wild cards. Uh, you get three wild cards and three division winners. In this scenario, there would only be two division winners per league and then four wild cards. So it makes sense to play everybody because you are competing against everybody. Whereas in the past, there was only one wild card or two wild cards or maybe even none where division games meant the most. So division winners get buys. The next four teams per league get in as wild cards. So one and two in each league, even if the second seed is a uh, you know a division winner that has a worse record than the best wild card, I think putting a little bit of emphasis on winning the division matters, similar to football, where uh, a team that's seven and nine can win a division, get a home playoff game, whereas there's a 10 and six uh, wildcard team. I think this even happened with the Eagles a couple of years ago. I think they got in and they played the uh, the Seahawks. I think the Eagles were nine and seven and the Seahawks were either 10 and six or 11 and five. But the Eagles were the home team because they won the East. Um, so that could happen. There might be some pushback there. I don't really care. I'm not in these owners meetings. Uh, you face your division teams seven times each. I'm sorry, 10 times each. So you play seven teams each 10 times, five on the road, five home. We get two series each, whatever, kind of how it is now. Um, so that's 70 games. Then you face the other division in your league. So in this case, I have Metro and Northeast in the same uh, division as the, the Southeast. And then I have the Pacific West and the Midwest in a division to, uh, in a league together. So I would split the league and have 16, 16 in each like conference or league. You would face the other division in your league six times each. So one series each, unless you want to do two game sets, whatever. One series each, home and road. That will account for 48 games. So you get to play every team in your division on you know home and away. And then you play every team in the other division in your league, home and away. And then the other league, so the other 16 teams on the other portion of the country, you would face those teams each twice. So you would play two either on the road or home, and it would alternate every year. So the Phillies would play the, in this in this scenario, the Dodgers two games a year. They would either play them there or here. And then the next year it would flip. Uh, that's 32 games. And that's how you get to 150 game schedule in a balanced realigned, relocated type of deal. Uh, last mailbag question. Do you have any plans to grow the podcast? This is from Greg. Uh, interesting question. I need my co-host to be here for this one, but um, my goal would be to, have uh, make the turn pod into a network, maybe have a solo pod a week from one of us, add some personnel here, get a second or third, get a third and fourth person here, have a producer, and then um, do the regular timeline show once a week, have like maybe a preview show later in the week with some a different combination of hosts, uh, maybe have a solo pod, maybe some like Eagles recaps and stuff like that. I would like to make it into a, a network of podcasts. All right. Uh, what's happening in the sports world? Um, this I'll kind of go through a little bit quicker aside from the Tommy John stuff. Um, so this is just like some bullet points. There will be some overlap on a future episode because I want to get my co-hosts opinions on some of these things. Um, Jonathan Taylor, the disgruntled running back of the Colts. He is obviously requesting a trade. Doesn't want to play for the Colts anymore. Wants a big contract. Uh, supposedly two teams, well, reportedly two teams have made real offers for him. 
and uh, five additional teams have checked in on him. So seven teams have spoken to the Colts. Two have made offers, and those two teams reportedly are the Eagles and the Miami Dolphins. Uh, the Dolphins are his preferred destination. Eagles would be more of just like a, ha, look what we can do. Um, so seven teams have checked in, two made offers. Does this make sense for the Eagles? I personally do not think so. I don't think it makes sense for the Eagles because they just spent, you know, $10 million on five running backs, uh, Swift, Penny, Gainwell, Scott, and Sermon, and their quarterback can also run. I don't think it makes sense to bring another guy in here and then just diminish the role of all those other guys when you spent all offseason talking about how you didn't value a position. Um, also, I don't think it makes sense because he would want a, uh, a long-term deal to accompany the the one year they would be here, even if they paid him $12 million on that one-year deal. Um, I don't think it makes sense for him to want to be here, especially because the, you know, the NFC East is a pretty rugged division, more likely that you get hurt here than playing inside it. Um, and Lucas oil. I just don't think he wants uh, short-term stability. I think he wants long-term stability. I don't really think he wants to win either. Um, Miami seems to be the, the preferred destination. They struck out on Dalvin cook. They, I think their starting running back is Raheem Mostert. So I think it's more likely he goes to Miami. Um, and I thought the Patriots maybe made some sense too, but the sticking with Ramondre uh, Stevenson and then bringing in Zeke Elliott, I think kind of takes them out of the running for a big guy like this. And Bill doesn't like the big personalities anyway. Um, so I think Taylor ends up on the Dolphins, whether or not it happens now, later in the season, who knows, but I don't think he wants to play this year if he's not getting paid. And I think that running backs have to understand the market is just not there for them anymore. Um, Dalvin Cook signing this late in the off season. Uh, Ezekiel Elliott signing this late in the offseason. Leonard Fournette, I believe, is still a free agent. There are still guys out there that can be had and probably dirt cheap. I mean, look at the Eagles. I mean, Miles Sanders got an $8 million deal from the uh, the Carolina Panthers, and the Eagles are paying $8 million to four of the five running backs they have here. So I just don't think it makes sense to value the position like that, especially when your quarterback is likely going to drop back and throw 30 times a game. Uh, even Tua will probably throw that often. Um Trey Lance traded to Dallas. This occurred yesterday. Uh, reportedly requested a trade Wednesday following the decision to make him the third string quarterback behind the incumbent starter, Brock Purdy, and the newly acquired Sam Darnold. Um, so Trey Lance, he made $32 million in three seasons to play less than 300 snaps and only throw four touchdown passes for the Niners. I know he was injured. He was a very raw prospect coming out of college. And I feel like this happens every draft where the number one guy is usually a pretty sure thing. You look at Trevor Lawrence, Joe Burrow, uh, even going back further, Goff even has kind of solidified himself as a pretty good player. And uh, Winston and Mariota was a weird one. But every draft, it feels like there's one or two guys that you can really hit your wagon to and, you know, you're good. Um, and then you also have the Trey Lances of the world, the Zach Wilsons of the world, and even, I guess, now that time has shown that the Carson Wentz's of the world. Uh, and even if you look back at, you know, uh, Sam, um, what's his name? Um Christian Ponder, uh, Blaine Gabbert, and um, Jake Locker, like three guys that were drafted high that kind of stunk. Even Bortles was not that good. Um, Trey Lance, I think he just needed a change of scenery. I, I you would have thought that if Shanahan could make it work with any quarterback, he could make it work with Lance. It just didn't. I don't know what it is. Um, they need, they almost need like a short kind of three-step drop guy that can just get the ball out fast and is mobile enough to throw it and not really run too much, which Purdy kind of fits the mold. And then Garoppolo obviously was perfect for them. So he, in my opinion, is probably just insurance for Dak Prescott. I don't think this is a, Hey Dak, look who's behind you kind of deal the way that, you know, the Jalen hurts thing might've been for Carson Wentz. 
Um, I hate to draw that comparison because I don't think it's, you know, a direct parallel, but I think he's more just Dak Prescott insurance. You know, he goes down, you got a way better backup now in, um, in Trey Lance than you did with Will Greer and, you know, Cooper Rush and all these different guys they try to trot out there. Uh, so he was the former third overall pick. This is in the 2021 draft. The Niners gave up a pretty big haul for him, gave up three first-round picks to the Dolphins. Those picks became Jalen Waddle, who the Dolphins the, – the, that was one of the three picks they kept. Um, then they traded uh, a first-round pick and a deal for Tyreek Hill, and they traded the other first-round pick and a deal for Bradley Chubb. Uh, the 10 players drafted after Trey Lance, this is kind of daunting, and it's amazing that the 49ers have been as good as they have been the last few years and as competitive after missing out on all of these guys, you have, there's a chance that all 10 of these guys could be, um, you know, first team all pros at some point. Uh, Kyle Pitts right after him, Jamar Chase went fifth, Jalen Waddle, uh, Panay Sewell, really good offensive tackle, JC Horn, good corner, um, Patrick Sertan, Devontae Smith, Justin Fields, Micah Parsons, and Rashawn Slater. You, I think if you give them a mulligan, they're taking at least one of those guys ahead of Lance 10 times out of 10. And Lance might not even go until after all of those guys. Um, it, it is amazing how the draft is such a sure thing to some folks and then such a crap shoot. Otherwise uh, Trey Lance was a, it, it kind of similar to Carson Wentz and um, some of these other one double a guys that come out that don't have a ton of tape on them. Didn't play a ton in college. And you wonder, okay, is this going to translate? Here's the measurables. Here's everything you can find out at the combine. And on pro days, but is it going to translate to the NFL field? Maybe he's just one of those guys that takes a little bit longer to develop, but the 49ers probably cannot afford to wait long enough for him to develop. And I think Brock Purdy's emergence last year, whether it was fluke or not, made him extremely expendable in their minds. So good for them. They got a fourth round pick, I believe, for him. Uh, the Cowboys released Will Greer and the move. Kind of a low risk move for the Cowboys, and they didn't give up a ton for him. Fourth round pick is probably worth it to have a little bit better insurance behind your quarterback who's also dealt with injuries the last few years so if Dak goes down I think Lance that's a better system for him to learn anyway he's a pretty similar quarterback to Prescott probably has a bigger arm uh we'll find out about his mental toughness being a you know a backup he already requested a trade after being told he was a backup we'll see how he does as a number two I'm sure he'll dress on game day behind uh Zach Prescott Speaking of uh, disgruntled stars, Chief Star defensive lineman Chris Jones is threatening to hold out until the trade deadline in hopes of a new contract. He's looking for a payday, too. Andy Reid says he hasn't spoken to Jones in a while. I think this is a big deal for the Chiefs. I know that their offense is their calling card, but their defense last year was still solid. I could argue that he is the second most important player on that team, ahead of Kelsey, ahead of some of those other guys, uh, just straight right behind Mahomes. I... I think it's a big deal if he misses time, if, if he doesn't play at all. And I think he's serious. I don't think this is a, um, you know, a Jonathan Taylor, Josh Jacobs holdout where it's like, I'm not coming back. And then they come back. I think he's, he's real because he knows how important he is to that team. Um, if I'm the chiefs, I pay him. Uh, I, I make him probably the second highest paid defensive lineman in the league behind Aaron Donald. Um, I, he just, he disrupts games. He watched the game against the Bengals last year. He was a big part of that win. If you catch any Chiefs games in the regular season, I've noticed it a million times watching them on Sunday night football or whatever. Three or four plays into the game, Collinsworth, look at this guy, Chris Jones, and it's just a disruptive play in the backfield. He is that defense. And for them to lose him would really, really put a damper on their their uh, their hopes of going to the Super Bowl. 
Uh, teams rumored for them. To, it, I'm sorry, teams that make sense and are also kind of tied to him. Uh, Patriots, Cowboys, Jaguars, Lions, Bills, Steelers, all potential landing spots. I would love him on the Jags. I think that'd be really cool. And even the Lions, I think, would be really cool. He also just feels like a Steeler. Uh, the Steelers have always had, you know, impact defensive linemen. Cam Hayward was there, still is. Um, they had Javon Hargrave the one year he really blew up. So, I mean, they've they've always had a really fierce defense. Uh, Cowboys, that would suck, but they love high-profile guys, and I bet you Bill Belichick would love to have him in his room. So, uh, Josh Jacobs and the Raiders agreed to a one-year $12 million contract. Um, he is going to play this year, but I think he's going to bounce after the season. Um, got a ton of wear and tear on his body last year carrying the ball. I think he wants a big deal too. Another guy that suffers from running back syndrome where he's an impact player, but for how much longer can he be an impact player? He was one of those guys that didn't carry the ball a ton in college. He was really the second running back for a while there. And he, that kind of helped him going to the NFL because he wasn't much of a, a bell cow the way Derrick Henry or Jonathan Taylor or Saquon Barkley would have been. So he's got a little bit more probably – tread on the tires left however in a league where you don't pay running backs much um this kind of, it's good for him that he got his money now because three four years down the road he might not be in the league um and then the big the big thing big talking point Shohei Otani potentially had to do a second Tommy John surgery he would join a list of 148 players who have gotten it twice in college or the pros um he's going to DH for the rest of the season Obviously, you saw that with Bryce Harper last year, um, not playing the field, not throwing the ball, but just DHing. Otani also did this in 2020 when he was coming off of surgery. Um, if you remember, I don't think he pitched at all. If he did, he only threw like one or two games. But Shoei Otani, um, he has a, a UCL injury. He's getting a second opinion at some point to see if it's uh, if it's necessary to get surgery or if he's just going to play the rest of the season as a hitter and just kind of rehab it. So the question is, uh, and this is a fascinating thing too, because he will need surgery on his throwing arm, which is he, he's, he and Harper are similar in the way, in the sense that they throw right-handed, but bat left-handed. So when you swing um, anybody out there, baseball guys, your lead elbow is actually the one that the torque is and, and a little bit of the, um, the stress is on as you're swinging through. So it's interesting that Harper was able to play so well last year. I'm sure Otani wears a brace. I know he wears a uh, protective guard on the right elbow when he bats at his hand, but we'll see if it, it impacts his swing at all. He had a double last night, so I don't think it's going to be a huge deal, but we'll keep an eye on it. Um, we'll see if he opts for surgery before the season ends or they're going to wait till the offseason, in which case he's going to miss all of next year on the mound while probably being able to hit, but probably not until like May. You wonder what this does to his free agency. Um, he was arguably the biggest free agent in the history of sports. Um, LeBron would maybe have an argument there as well in 2010, but Otani, for what he does for a ball club, not just from the standpoint that he plays both ways, but the marketing, everything that comes with it, and especially if he stays on the West Coast, um, all like that Japanese contingent that I spoke of, it's a lot of money for a club that signs him. It will be a lot of money to get him, but they're going to make so much off the guy. I don't think it's a huge deal. Um, long-term anyway for his um, his health. There have been plenty of guys that have come back from Tommy John have been great. Justin Verlander won the Cy Young last year. Jake DeGrom, I know he's getting another surgery, has been was really good when he came back. Um, Tyler Glass now. I actually have a list here as well that I'll get to in a moment uh, about guys that have come back and been effective, um, guys that have gotten it twice and been effective too. 
Um, I don't think it's likely that he is a relief pitcher when he comes back and pitches. I think it's either starter or bust as, as far as pitching goes for him. It's very difficult already to be a starting pitcher and go every fifth or sixth day while DHing on your non-pitching days. But to be a closer is almost impossible because you have to be like when you're when you're a starting pitcher, you know, all right, I'm today's Sunday. I'm pitching Tuesday. I got tomorrow. I got you know, I got my bullpen this day. And then you wake up on Tuesday and you're zoned in. Otani wakes up on Friday, whatever. He's ready. It's hard to be in, you know, in the dugout thinking about your last at bat, but I was going, okay, we're up five, two. It's the seventh inning. I got to run out to the bullpen and start throwing or how's it? They're going to have to build a, a bullpen in the dugout, like behind the dugout where the clubhouse is, whatever they sign him. So I don't think it's likely he becomes a closer. I think he's either going to be a starter or just a hitter. Uh, I wonder if he can play a little bit of outfield if he does decide to not pitch anymore or if it's decided for him to not pitch anymore um, because he's such a good athlete. And I think he did play some outfield in Japan. I wonder if he can just be hidden in the corner somewhere. This way you don't have to only give the DH spot to him. But the, it's kind of tough to commit to one guy being the DH all the time, especially now where you know health and days off are prioritized in baseball. He's going to probably have to play a position, and that would – really help his value as opposed to just signing a DH. It's hard to give $500 million to a DH only, um, even with as good as he is as a, uh, a hitter. Because even Aaron Judge only got, what, 320 or whatever it was when he became a um, – when he was signed last free agency. I still think Shohei gets a huge deal, whether it's you know a six-year deal for $500 million or $300 million or whatever. I don't know if he's going to get a long, long deal because it's reasonable to wonder and, you know – kind of be concerned about his long-term health, but I think short-term he's still going to be rock solid if he still decides to pitch. Uh, he, he would probably miss next year and maybe parts of the following year on the mound, but um, I think he'd still be able to hit sometime middle of next year. So I did a little bit more digging into this Tommy John stuff. It is obviously, um, you know, you talk about the other sports, football and um basketball where the torn ACL used to be just like a killer. And now guys are just tearing their ACLs and come back even stronger. And even the Achilles has kind of become that um, Kevin Durant coming back from an Achilles injury and being Kevin Durant again is pretty impressive. I think baseball players, it, uh, some guys are opting for Tommy John, you know, I can't snap my fingers, but at the snap of a finger in high school, college, because they know they're going to come back even better after it. And they almost just want to get it out of the way. So any type of strain on the UCL, uh, any labrum issues. These guys are just getting arm surgeries and coming back stronger. So there have been, I have the, the stat here, 2,344 pitchers who have gotten Tommy John at least once, 148 have gotten it twice. Uh, there have been 57 Tommy John surgeries among MLB players since the beginning of the 2019 season. If you want to count the two that happened in the offseason prior, so the end of 2018 season, uh, Shohei Otani and Didi Gregorius both got surgery after the 18 season. Uh, Didi was back, I believe, in time for 19. Shohei, I think, only batted um, in 19. And then I didn't really pitch much in 20 either. But um, so 52 pitchers, only five position players have gotten the surgery out of that 57 since the beginning of the 19 season. The five position players were Sal Perez, uh, Aaron Hicks, Franklin Barreto, Jemai Jones, and Bryce Harper. <laughs> Uh, this doesn't count minor league guys like Kumar Rocker and uh, Andrew Painter and other guys also in there too. 
there actually is a comprehensive list. Um, I forget the name of the guy that made it, but there's a Google sheet that documents every single Tommy John surgery since 1974, which was the original one, Tommy John. Um, in the last four seasons, so this also ties into shortening the season maybe, or maybe some teams go into a six-man rotation. I know a lot of the old people don't want that, but it might make sense with how much talent is in the game now. I mean, maybe expansion will also take care of this too. That could be a long-form conversation another day. But since 2019, only four starting pitchers are really just pitchers in general who average 95-plus on their fastballs. So guys that their average fastball speed is 95 or more. Only four guys have thrown 700 innings since the beginning of 2019. Garrett Cole, who actually had Tommy John in the minors. Sandy Alcantara, who is, he might be this, you know, this generation's version of, you know, a young Justin Verlander, where every year the guy's just out there competing and, you know, blowing guys away and doesn't get hurt. Uh, Luis Castillo, who everybody every year says is going to get hurt because of his arm angle. He's been remarkably durable. And Zach Wheeler, who also had Tommy John with the Mets. So two of those four guys have had Tommy John. One looks like he's impervious to it, and the other people think will get it, but all four of them have been remarkably durable. Garrett Cole, arguably the best free agent contract in the history of baseball. He, If he wins a World Series with the Yankees, I will put him ahead of the Scherzer contract. Sandy Alcantara won the, NBA, um, sorry, won the Cy Young last year, untouchable. He's been a little bit more human this year, but still remarkable talent. Luis Castillo, great pitcher and Zach Wheeler has been a really good value for the Phillies, probably their best free agent other than Harper in the last 10 years. So it, it, with how many guys are getting hurt, all these guys going the IL, that stat does not necessarily support, you know, the Tommy John, um, I guess, angle of it. However, it does show that, you know, these guys are getting hurt or if they throw, if they, if they're pitching a lot, they're not throwing very hard. I'm sure Aaron Nola's thrown 700 innings, but he's not touching 95 of this fastball. So, um, among the guys who have actually had Tommy John in that 2019 to uh, to current day uh, time frame, uh, Luis Severino of the Yankees missed all of 21. Uh, actually pitched in relief one time. Chris Sale missed all last year. Noah Syndergaard missed a lot of time. Justin Berlander uh, missed an entire season, came back even stronger. Mike Clevenger has actually gotten two. James Paxton, we still don't know if he's ever going to be Big Maple again. Dustin May is headed to his second surgery. Tyler Glass now just came back. Uh, Casey Mize, I believe, is still out. Robbie Ray, I believe, is still out. Kenta Maeda, John Means, Matt Boyd, Antonio Senzatella. These are all guys that are top of the rotation plug. Talents, Sale, obviously, is at the end of his career. Severino has really come back down to earth this year and been one of the worst pitchers of baseball. But these are all guys that maybe, if not for the surgery, could have been in that nine, you know, 95-plus, 700-plus innings the last four seasons um, group. 2,344 pitchers as of Shane McClanahan, which was in May, uh, could be one higher with Otani, um, have gotten Tommy John dating back to 1974, which was the original one with actual Tommy John. Uh, 148 players, like I mentioned, have gotten it twice. Uh, the most recent uh, cases of this would be Jake DeGrom uh, about a month ago, uh, Shane McClanahan, who I believe is headed to a surgery, and then you could also add Otani in there maybe as number 149. So, this season alone, guys that have gotten, um, you know, have gone toward the Tommy John, you know, avenue. Those three guys are in there. There's countless minor league players. Uh, Kamar Rocker, like I mentioned, Andrew Painter, big prospect for the Phillies. Uh, it, there's going to be a Tommy John every month almost, it feels like. Um, you, you take a look at some of the guys that have gotten it twice. 
Uh, some guys have come back and been fine. Uh, Nathan Avaldi, 2007, when he was still a, I believe, a Dodger prospect. 2016, got it a second time. Jamison Tyone, uh, 2014, when he was a Pirate, and 2019 as a Yankee. Daniel Hudson, uh, back-to-back years in 2012 and 13 with the Diamondbacks. Joaquin Soria, when he was with the Royals, 2003 and 12. Chris Capuano um, had a really lengthy career with the Brewers, 02 and 08. He got Tommy John. Then you look at guys who, you know, got it twice and didn't pitch all that effectively. Josh Johnson, his career, he could have been an all-star every single year, if not for injuries. He got surgery twice, 07 and 14 with the Marlins. Chris Medlin, who was a budding star with the Braves, he got it 2010 and 14. Jared Parker was one of my favorite players. Um, when I remember him being drafted by the Diamondbacks, traded for Trevor Cahill to the A's. He was electric. He was part of that um, that 2012 A's team that had a ton of rookies on it. Um, he got surgery in 09 with the Diamondbacks and then 14 with the A's, and then he kind of just fell off toward the end. I think he was a red at 1.2. Um, Brandon Beachy came up right around the same time as Chris Medlin. He got surgery twice with the Braves in 12 and 14, never the same. And then Brian Wilson, who was good after the first one and then just kind of fell off after the second, uh, 2003 and 2012, the only relief pitcher on this list, uh, at least like permanent relief pitcher. He was the best closer in baseball for a few years there. And then um, second Tommy John, he just disappeared. Um, then we have some wait and see guys. Obviously, Walker Bueller, he got surgery last year. He got it uh, in 2015 with Vanderbilt. Mike Clevenger, 12 and 20. He, uh, he's been pitching. Obviously, he's got the domestic stuff. So we, he may or may not be a scumbag. Uh, Jake DeGrom got it twice. Uh, well, is headed to at least getting it a second time. Shane McClanahan got it in 2016 and he's getting it. He got it again recently. Chris Paddock, who was a really like encouraging budding star with the Padres. He got it in 16. He got it again last year. Uh, Dustin May, he got it in May, 2021 and July, 2023. So another guy that got him pretty clustered together. Uh, Hunjin Ryu, first surgery. I couldn't find a date, but he got it last year as well. Trevor Rosenthal, uh, 17 and 23. TJ Antone of the Reds, 2017 and 21. Drew Rasmussen, uh, he actually got it back-to-back years, and he almost got it a third time, but he opted for uh, some sort of a brace surgery in his elbow. So we'll see what happens with all those guys. But all the Tommy John guys, uh, it, it's almost kind of 50-50. They come back stronger. They come back and kind of disappear. But this lends itself to the discussion I had earlier about shortening the season and making it a little bit more player conducive. The, the arm is not the, – the human arm. You never hear about softball players getting Tommy John. The human arm is really not supposed to throw the ball overhanded. And the amount of torque and the amount of, you know, you know the wicked stuff these guys are throwing and the arm angles they're throwing, the tunneling, the pitches, and all this stuff, it, it is a lot of stress on these arms. And it's no surprise that almost every free agent contract in their 30s, these pitchers all stink and they're not, they're not holding up. Uh, Rich Hill, one of the outliers, doesn't throw very hard. And, you know, Dan Heron pitched forever. He didn't throw very hard. Some of these guys that, you know, throw with big velo. Uh, first one I remember watching as a kid, Joel Zamaya. He kind of died toward the end of his career with the Twins. And uh, he was a Tiger earlier than that came back. It was a twin re- uh, briefly, but he, you know, big arm, 102, 103, and kind of just fell off. Chapman is kind of, you know, maybe bucking the trend. Hunter Green, you wonder about his long-term health. Uh, Garrett Cole, I think he's found a good way to pitch without injuring himself, but uh, so many guys are getting injured, and I think it it might be because of the length of season. Um, and then one other piece of uh, news here, one other piece of information I found very fascinating about the Angels this season because I think they might be cursed. Only seven of the 26 guys that were on the Angels' opening day roster 
have either have, have actually stuck through the entire season. So they have so only seven guys have not been traded, released, designated for assignment, sent down to the minors, or injured. Uh, Luis Renjifo, Hunter Renfro, Patrick Sandoval, Reed Detmers, Carlos Estevez, Jaime Barria, and Tyler Anderson are the only guys that were on the opening day roster that have not been um, it, like impeded, you know, sent down to the minors, traded away. Um, Otani injured. Um, I don't think he's actually been on the IL, but injured. Ohapi, uh, Logan Ohapi coming back from a labrum injury. Uh, Matt Thice, shoulder inflammation. Braden Drury missed time with a contusion in his shoulder. Gio Urshela broke his pelvis. Anthony Rendon, God knows when he's ever going to be healthy again. Mike Trout fractured his wrist. Taylor Ward has a broken orbital bone. Uh, Brett Phillips, David Fletcher, Jake Lamb all DFA'd. Uh, Tyler Anderson has stuck it out. Uh, Patrick Sandoval, Reed Detmers also stood it out. Uh, Robert, I'm sorry. Uh, I forget the guy's first name. Suarez. Uh, shoulder strain, um, Matt Davidson, DFA, Ryan Tapera, DFA, uh, Aaron Loop missed time with a hamstring injury. Uh, it's just all these guys. Uh, Matt Moore, oblique. It, the Angels might just be cursed. Um, I'm sure the numbers are much better on other teams. I, I would imagine the Phillies, if I had to guess, probably have 13 of their 26 guys from the beginning of the season that have not missed any time. Off the top of my head, you know, Bohmstadt, Schwarber, Castellanos, um, a lot of guys have still stood it out. Had not been injured. Walker, Matt Strom, Craig Kingbrill. It goes on, uh, but it just shows the bad luck that the Angels have had. And uh, you, you hope and pray that if Otani does stay there, they can somehow get the man to the playoffs and Trout. Um, next piece of the sports roundup: Steven Strasburg likely to retire at the age of 35 amid a battle with thoracic outlet syndrome. That is um, an arm issue. It's more of a nerve issue. Uh, where I believe your ribs are pushing up against nerves that are impacting the uh, the health of your arm and also causing you pain and discomfort up there. The common course of action for that is to remove a rib to take a little bit of pressure off the nerve there um, and impact your quality of life. Um, Matt Harvey had TOS. Uh, Markel Fultz supposedly had TOS. So th- there, there are documented uh, bouts with TOS that have been at least rectified to an extent. Strasburg has not really pitched in a while, so... Uh, retirement seems to be the uh, the best thing for him and his family and also just his long-term health, which really sucks. I- I'm happy for him that he's not going to be, you know, pushing himself and injuring himself further. Uh, it sucks for Nats fans. At one point, he was the biggest pitcher in the history of the MLB draft. He was touted as the next Nolan Ryan. Um, he never became Nolan Ryan, but he was a damn good pitcher. Um, just a, a handful of accolades here. 2019 World Series champion and World Series MVP. Three-time All-Star, won a Silver Slugger as a pitcher. He um, had a 3-2-4 ERA, a 1.09 whip in uh, 1,400 innings, almost 1,500 innings. He had a 10.5 strikeouts per nine innings, 4.37 strikeout to walk ratio, really good. Ninth in Cy Young voting in 2014, third in 2017, fifth in 2019. Actually got MVP votes in 2019 as well. And he, um, he's one of those guys that you can literally say gave everything he had to win a World Series. Um, as much as I do not like the Nationals, that was an outstanding team and a great run. And he had a postseason for the ages that year. Um, six appearances in the 2019 playoffs, uh, five starts. He was 5-0, and 36 innings pitched, a 1980 ERA. The Nationals were 6-0 and in games he pitched. Um, uh, the one relief appearance being the wild card game against the Brewers where they came back on that Juan Soto weird like single error thing that scored um, off of Josh Hader where the right fielder Trent Grisham made a uh, boot of the ball. It's actually kind of coincidental how they're all teammates now. Um, 
in his career in the playoffs, hard to do much better than this. Nine postseason appearances over, I believe, four different, uh, maybe five different playoff runs. A 1-4-6 ERA, 55 innings pitched in nine playoff appearances. That's very, very impressive. Um, he led the league in innings in 2019 with 209, pitched another 30 in the playoffs. He led the NL in starts with 34, and he led the uh, NL in strikeouts with 242 in 2014. He had a 3.02 FIP fielding independent pitching. That's where you um, you kind of measure pitchers' impact on the game, where the things that he can control, such as home runs, strikeouts, and walks. 3.02, it's almost like a uh, like an ERA derivative, but it doesn't really directly correlate to uh, to runs. It's really just what the pitcher can control. Uh, that would be fourth among active pitchers. Uh, 32.3 uh, baseball reference war, B-war. That'd be 49th among active players, 16th amongst pitchers. He'd be 16th in strikeouts, fourth in ERA plus with 127. He never had a season where he was below average as a pitcher in terms of ERA plus other than the last three where he only pitched a few games each season. Uh, he had a, a 114 was the lowest he had in a full season. So a, a very good pitcher. He uh, Over his career, that basically means he was 14% better than the average starting pitcher in baseball. Uh, he signed a seven-year, $245 million contract with the Nats in the 2019 offseason after that playoff run. Unfortunately, he was never the same. Uh, a lot of wear and tear on that arm. He had Tommy John in 2010. Um, actually, I believe he injured his arm uh, against the Phillies in a start in, I believe, July, maybe August. Uh, only made eight starts from the beginning of 2020 to uh, the middle of 2022. Uh, did not pitch this year. Uh, had only 30 innings, 31 point, uh, 31 to 30 innings pitched, 6.89 ERA in those starts. So unfortunately, was you know never the same after the long playoff run and then also a shortened offseason that actually turned into a long offseason heading into 2020, but just ran into arm issues left and right. And they couldn't really pinpoint what the real problem was. And that's why they're kind of pivoting to the TOS. Uh, weirdly enough, his contract was not insured by the Washington Nationals. Um, I don't understand it as much as some other folks might, but large contracts, for instance, the Bryce Harbor contract or the A-Rod contract back in the day, these teams take out insurance policies on those deals so that, God forbid, something happens to the player, in this case, Steven Strasburg, the Nationals don't necessarily – well, they owe him that money if he stays as an active player, which in this case he's not. So I'll get into that in a second. But, you know, God forbid something happens to, let's say um, – let's make it a little bit more modern. Aaron Judge, the nine-year, 300-plus million-dollar deal. I'm sure the Yankees house time runner insurance policy on that. So, God forbid, you know, Judge gets injured – that insurance company is paying the Yankees to pay judge. So the Yankees are kind of, you know, saved the nationals never insured that contract. So the last couple of years when he's been sitting out uh, injured, he's been owed, you know, 20 plus million dollars, $25 million. They are just paying that straight out of their payroll budget, I suppose. And they've been awful. So they're not, you know, bringing in a ton of revenue. So that's probably kind of handcuffed them. And that's part of the reason I'm sure why they couldn't keep Soto or Rendon because they didn't insure that contract or the Rendon left at the same time. But um, while they haven't been able to keep some of these big names and Soda wanted out and they couldn't afford these guys, my, uh, Mike Rizzo, the GM and, you know, the owner, they're all kind of cheap. They try to spread money out over the course of a long period of time with these contracts. And they came to a settlement with Strasburg where he'll get paid a ton of money over the next like 20 or 30 years or whatever. But if you remember um, when they signed Scherzer, Big deal then. It was a seven-year, $140 million deal. It was actually going to pay him over the course of, 
uh, 14 years. So he's actually still getting paid by the Nats uh, versus instead of getting, you know, seven, one forty, it's really 14, one forty is getting paid 10 million a year from them. Uh, so half the money over the course of twice the length of the deal. I believe they even offered Bryce Harper a contract that would have paid him into his fifties, um, which spreads the money out, lowers the annual you know hit on the budget. So that I don't think they did that with him until they came to this settlement. But the the Nats really kind of shot themselves in the foot there. Uh, you could argue also after that 2019 season, three of the worst contracts in baseball, arguably the three worst, if not for you know maybe Giancarlo Stanton can throw his hat into the uh, into the fire here. At least Stanton has played though, so I'll, I'll kind of count him out. Uh, Steven Strasburg. Patrick Corbin, Anthony Rendon, arguably the three worst contracts in baseball, maybe the three worst in sports, um, all have ties to that 2019 team that won a championship. And I think a lot of people would say, hey, I will take a championship if it means we have to, you know, eat some crap down the road. Strasburg, 7245. Patrick Corbin, six million, uh, sorry, six years, 140. He's still going to get paid until the end of next season. And then Anthony Rendon, um, seven years, 245. His deal is up in 2026. So three just abysmal contracts. Um, two of them handed out by the Nats. One they avoided, but the uh, possibly the only franchise more cursed than them did not. So Anthony Rendon, sorry about your luck there, but at least you're getting paid. All right. Um, kind of wrap it up soon. Phillies won last night. They beat the Cardinals and Miles Michaelis again. First time seeing him since... Game two of the wild card series last year. They beat him 7-2. Goldie got a two-run homer in the first inning. Paul Goldschmidt. Um, Phillies got home runs from Kyle Schwarber and Alec Bohm. Kyle Schwarber becomes the first Philly to have 35-plus home run seasons in consecutive seasons. Since Ryan Howard did it four times in a row from 06 to 09, uh, 14 home runs for Bohm. That ties a career high. Uh, two-run uh, two double from Garrett Stubbs, an RBI double from Schwarber. Uh, the ball that Schwarber hit actually got stuck in the fence, which was the first time I've ever seen that at uh, CBP, like that chain length in front of the waste management sign in right field. Um, Bryson Stott, sack fly, Nick Castellanos, RBI double. Uh, the series will continue this evening on Fox 715, Dakota Hudson and Zach Wheeler. And then tomorrow, Drew Rahm and Aaron Nola. Rahm has only made one start this year. Uh, Nola coming off a couple of good ones. So uh, I think a sweep here is necessary. Uh, Joel and I will talk more in long form about the Phillies tomorrow, but that's uh, where I stand. I think a sweep is necessary here. They got to take tonight and then at least tomorrow they can kind of live with a, um, I'm sorry. Yeah. Tomorrow they can live with a loss, but uh, chances are JT rail Muto will play both of these games because Stubbs got the start last night. So that's good. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the ballparks that I, my wife and I had the pleasure of being at um, last week. So we started in, um, so we, anybody who knows me now personally, or at least follows me on um, social knows that we kind of, honestly, this year decided, you know, we wanted to start seeing as many ballparks as we could. Last year, we saw Yankee Stadium uh, and City Field, which were both really, really fun trips. Uh, went to Yankee twice with the city once. Uh, we've, we've been to a million games. She's very into it, as am I. Obviously, I'm into it. Um, I very much lucked out with her. Uh, being a baseball fan or at least um, growing her fandom. And I think the playoffs really solidified that forever because we read all three of the NLCS games here against the Padres. Um, so we have kind of grown as a couple and as people going to these ball games, and we really enjoy, you know, base Phillies games even now are still pretty cheap. You can pay, you know, 20, 30 bucks for a ticket and make a nice night out of it. We wanted to experience all these parks. And last year we hit Yankee stadium during her spring break. 
that um that trip for all intents and purposes may or may have saved my fandom as a baseball fan in um in you know pretty much the Phillies process years from 13 to 17 or 18. I was into it, but not as much as I could have been. 19 kind of really got back into it as they became more competitive. 20, there was nothing else on. 21 kind of started wavering fandom-wise, still into baseball, but kind of started to fall off with my love for it. And then 2022, uh, the we, we saw Yankees Red Sox in April, and that really like resuscitated my fandom for baseball. I remembered why I fell in love with baseball in the first place. That trip was everything, even though it was just a regular meaningless game at the beginning of the year. Um, it got me right back into it and she was with me the whole time. So we hit, uh, we hit Yankee stadium again in June of last year and saw Justin Verlander first and last time that we'll probably ever see him in person. Uh, amazing game. They, uh, they lost the Astros, but the Yankees cares. It's the Yankees. Uh, Yankees Astros was a fun experience. Then we went to Philly's Mets at city field, the Matt Veerling game where he threw out, I believe it was uh, Starling Marte, Marte at home plate in extra innings. They won against the Mets. Um, that was a fun game. Those Rangers Suarez against Max Scherzer on Friday night, uh, Apple TV game. And then this year, as we approached um, her spring break, we wanted to hit another ballpark. We hit Boston. Boston was a park we went to uh, beginning of the year. Then we also hit Baltimore later that week. We hit the Yankee Stadium in the middle there to see the Phillies. And then from there, it kind of it just kept growing and growing. So after those parks, we hit. So we were up to five, I believe, with um, with Baltimore. Our number six park was um, was I, I believe Cleveland. Uh, I'm sorry, Washington. We saw uh, we saw just a Nats um, Rangers game, pretty cheap. Went there, really enjoyed it, and then went to Cleveland for the Phillies. Went to Pittsburgh for the Phillies. Saw all three uh, Phillies games in Pittsburgh, two out of three in Cleveland uh, the weekend prior, and then decided, you know, kind of on a whim, maybe a month prior, hey, why don't we just go to California? This will be our, you know, de facto honeymoon. We'll knock out some ballparks. We'll see some beaches, and this will be pretty sweet. Um, I'll give you a little bit of a, a spark notes on the games, as I know we're kind of running out of time. Um, we'll talk a little bit more in long form tomorrow. And then we also have something toward the end. I'll explain later uh, regarding ballparks for a you know, whole episode, maybe a series of episodes. Uh, but we started in San Francisco. Uh, hotel was right down the block from the stadium. Gorgeous ballpark, just absolutely stunning. Um, I think it's a better view than Pittsburgh. That's my opinion. No, I'm not saying that with any ill will toward Pittsburgh and PNC park. I just thought it was a, just a stunning, beautiful view. Um, the game was boring. It was a 2-1 game. Uh, all three runs came toward the end. Uh, Nathaniel Lowe and Mitch Garver solo home runs for the Rangers. I missed both as I was on the concourse. And then a, uh, an RBI ground out for the Giants in the ninth after a weird misplay uh, by the Rangers to uh, let the pinch hitter get the third. Um, I, I thought the fans were not into it as much as I had hoped. Um, it was chilly, which I enjoyed because it reminded me a little bit of the playoffs. Uh, just a gorgeous ballpark. Did absolutely everything you could ask for in a park. Um, the atmosphere was kind of lacking, but the concourse is gorgeous. Um, the view, my God. Um, I, I have a criteria that I'll talk about later when we talk about the ballparks, but um, some things very nice, some things not so much. That was probably the best food options of any ballpark as well. If you're into ballpark food, um, I think it's up there with, I think Camden Yards is number one. I think San Francisco is number two. Um, then the next day we flew to San, uh, L.A., Spent a week in LA, went to the Dodgers game on that Saturday. Dodger Stadium, when I got there, I thought almost looked like a hotel resort. Almost felt like I was in like you know, like on the beach at a ballpark that had built been built for a beach town. It's very cool looking, but it's very old. Almost looks like you're in like the Flintstones or something. Uh, the view is gorgeous. We always try to get seats behind on plate, but I thought the view the view was gorgeous. Uh, the fans did not seem into it. 
the first night that we were there. We went again on Tuesday and we felt more of like a, a regular baseball atmosphere. But that Saturday night, it didn't feel like the fans really cared. Um, there was a home run on the first pitch of the game, which is really cool. Um, I like that the speakers are in one spot and only one spot because the sound kind of reverberates. And I like that, that that kind of makes it feel like an older ballpark. Some of these new parks with the surround sound all over the place, it almost feels like you're inside of the speakers. Uh, the speakers, they just have big ass ones in center field just hanging from a giant pole. That's where all the music and all the PA announcement comes from. And you hear it on TV too, the reverberation of the sound. I actually really thought that was cool. And I like the um, I like the shape of their um, their jumbotrons as well. But the games were really fun. Uh, the Dodgers are obviously a great team. They won both the games we saw. Uh, Wednesday we went to Petco. Uh, we saw the Orioles and the Padres. Very interesting looking park. It almost felt kind of small. I know it's a larger park, but you feel very enclosed with the big buildings everywhere and the Western Metal Supply Company in left. I think it's a pretty ballpark. My wife did not like it too much. Uh, she thought the first two were very beautiful. This one, she wasn't a huge fan. I love that green hill, the grass hill in center field. I don't know if it's in the park or outside of it where you can kind of watch the game from. Uh, the PA system was really good. The uh, the uh, PA announcer is actually the guy from the show. So interesting little tie in there. You hear him in the video games. Um, but the, the, the fans, that was the best atmosphere we experienced was uh, Petco, in my opinion. Um, maybe Angel Stadium will throw their... You know, we'll throw a claim in there as well, but I really enjoyed the atmosphere there. The team, uh, they won the game. Interesting, fun game against the O's, two really good teams. Uh, Petco, I think, is a favorable park. I, I think it's a bit overrated. I, In fact, I think most of the parks that uh, people love are a tad overrated, even Pittsburgh, even though I liked it there. Uh, Friday, we saw the Angels. That was the Angels and the Rays. A uh, fun game, went to extra innings, um, out-of-body experiences, as I spoke about earlier. I think I forgot this one, the Shohei Otani Grand Slam. My God, it was like Michael Jordan dunking from half court in a USA game or something. It, it was incredible. Uh, we got there at, we got there a little late, huge parking lots, easy to get in, easy to get out, easiest, easiest parking we had uh, on parking facility. Well, I, I think parking in general was easy all week because we found the right lots, but that was the easiest of all the lots to get into and get out of. Uh, Angel Stadium is not a very like favorable stadium among baseball fans. I really enjoyed it, and so did she. I thought that might have been like my favorite of the the trip. Between the the scenery, you could see Honda Center right outside of center field where the Ducks play. Um, I thought the fans were into it. I thought the the game was fun. You couldn't really hear the PA system all that well, but I thought maybe that was because of the fans. Um, it's not like Baltimore where you just can't hear anything at all. Um, but I, I really enjoyed that game. It was a fun game. It was a high-scoring game. The the Angels were up, I think, 6-1 at one point or 6-2, and they blew the lead. They lost, I believe, 9-6. The Rays won an extra innings. We got to see Andrew Kidridge, his first game back from Tommy John to you know, kind of tie everything together. Really fun. And we got to see uh, a typical Angels loss where Shohei Otani hits a grand slam. There was a triple play in the ninth inning, which was absurd. Um, what's his name? Uh Nolan Samuel, Samuel, his first game in the majors got his first hit, and the Angels lost. Uh, and then we wrapped it all up on uh, Saturday. We flew back to San Francisco and then drove to Oakland to see the A's and the Coliseum. Uh, as old as it is, and everybody thinks it's a dump, it's probably the worst park we've been to. But I enjoyed it. I didn't. I'm not as critical of parks and everything as everybody else is. Obviously, it's the crappiest of the parks we saw. It's incredibly hideous in center field with Mount Davis out there uh, building that for the Raiders. Um, it's broken. It's, it's falling apart. There's duct tape, literally holding seats together. Uh, there was duct tape on the steps next to us. Half the concessions weren't open, but it was fine. I enjoyed it. It reminded me a lot of the vet and the spectrum. 
And the fans there that were in attendance were very into the game. There weren't many. Uh, it was probably enough to just fill the lower bowl, if that. I thought the protesters were fun. Uh, there were protesters in right field. I got some nice pictures. Uh, the team was – it was a fun game. I mean, we saw two home runs from the A's player, uh, Ledmus Diaz, and then um, they wound up losing in extras. But uh, extra innings are such a crapshoot. I don't really care that much anymore um, about extra innings, wins and losses, unless it's the Phillies. But I actually really had a good time at this game. The weather was perfect. It was chilly enough to where, like, I wasn't hot and sweaty. But it wasn't too cold for me. I thought we both – I thought we had a good experience. Um, something that holds the uh, the Angels and A's stadiums together for me is that they have Froyo in the stadiums instead of ice cream. So if you buy the Froyo helmet, you're, it's not all over your arm by the time you get back to your seat because it holds better. Um, that will tie into my ballpark ratings later on in the uh, in the show. And then I'm going to wrap it up real quick with uh, some other stuff, random things that uh, just happened and I thought would be interesting to talk about, and then we'll get you out of here. So Wednesday this week, the 24th was – I'm sorry, the uh, the 23rd was the 14-year anniversary of the Eric Bruntlett unassisted triple play for the Phillies against the Mets. Um, I remember this pretty well. I think I was on the beach for this, and there were people watching the game and people reacted. So this got me thinking of other random Philadelphia and non-Philadelphia athletes and professional players just doing like super noteworthy things that you otherwise would just associate with, you know, big players. Um, so I put together a list of 10 things that happen in Philly and five non-Philly um, athlete, random athletes, like role players doing things. Um, I ranked them. I'll do the non-Philly first. So this is kind of like uh, in the same ilk as the Eric Bruntley triple play. Like these are no hitters, walk-offs, maybe uh, like postseason performances from guys you wouldn't expect. Um, honorable mention to, I don't even know the guy's name. The left, uh, I think it was Connor Gillespie, the left-handed hitter for the uh, the Giants that hit the game-winning home run in the world wild card in 2016 at City Field off us, off of Jerry's Familia. Uh, so my non-Philly, so the Steve Pierce 2018 World Series MVP, just out of nowhere, a Red Sox guy that was kind of like a uh, a journeyman with the Orioles and the uh, the Pirates early in his career. Uh, didn't even have a picture in MLB The Show the first year he was in the majors, 08. Winning MVP in the World Series, I think is really cool, especially for a role guy. I don't even think he's in the league anymore. Number four, Matt Flynn, 480 yards and six touchdowns in a regular season game toward the end of the year for the Packers in 2011. Then he got a huge contract with the Seahawks and then got beat out by Russell Wilson in training camp for the starting job. Pretty much never played again, but that huge um, that's one of the big football ones, a huge performance by a guy that got paid and then just never really played anymore. Uh, Philip Humber, a perfect game in 2012. He was on the, I want to say the White Sox, and this was against, I want to say Seattle, and I think the last pitch of the game was kind of a questionable call. It was a 3-2 pitch where – the batter may or may not have actually held his swing, but the umpire called him out. Uh, Philip Humber had a 5-3-1 ERA over eight seasons in the majors with, uh, I believe, seven different teams. And he had a 6-4-4 ERA the year that he threw the perfect game. So everything really does just have to come together for one special start. Um, that was the only complete game he ever threw in the majors. Uh, next, number two, is the Scooter Jeanette four-home run game. Uh, this was the 2018 season, I want to say, for the Reds. Scooter Jeanette came up with the Brewers – Bounced around a little bit, wound up with the Reds. Had actually a couple of good seasons there. And uh, he actually hasn't played in the majors since 2019. And then number one is the Corey Brewer 50-point game. This was when he was a member of the Timberwolves. I think this game, the 50 points were like 23 layups and then a half-court heave. 
Um, he had an 8.7 career points per game average in eight uh, over the course of uh, his career, which I think was 13 years. And he played for eight teams. So those five guys just doing random things that will have you in the record books forever, but otherwise you're not really remembered. I have 10 Philadelphia um, kind of either single game or single season or single postseason performances. And then uh, that'll wrap this segment up and I'll kind of tell you what the podcast is doing going forward. Uh, number 10 would be the Kim Batiste walk-off hit in the NLCS uh, 1993. I believe that was game one, I want to say. And that was off of, um, I think that was off of Mark Wallers, who was the closer for the Braves. He was a bench player. He was kind of a platoon guy. That 93 team had a lot of them. And then after 93, he never really played much. Uh, the Dominic Brown, 2013, the month of May, he had 12 home runs. He parlayed that into it like at, at least two more seasons in the majors before he realized uh, he was terrible. Uh, number seven, I'm sorry, number eight, right? One, two, three. Yeah, I'm sorry. Number eight, Daniel Carcillo, overtime game-winning goal in the 2010 playoffs against the Devils. That was game three, the first home game of that series. In the first round, he gave the Flyers a 2-1 lead in the series. He only had 12 goals that regular season, which was one lower than his career high set in 08. And he only had five career playoff goals. Only one other won that playoff run. He was a kind of a fighter slash like agitator bottom line kind of guy, but they put him with the top line, Mike Richards and Simone Gagne, and he scored the game winner in overtime. And he really, uh, I'm sure Marty Brodeur hated that guy. So for him to score that goal and, and win the um, win the game was incredible. Uh, by the way, I missed one birthday when we started the episode. It's Ranger Suarez's birthday. Uh, probably one of my favorite uh, Phillies. Um, number seven, Jason Babin having 18 sacks in 2011. Uh, he had a couple good years in the NFL. This was part of that wide nine scheme, I believe, from Juan Castillo. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think Trent Cole also had a really good year. Uh, he only had 16 and a half sacks the rest of his career after that, but 18 sacks this season is absurd, kind of almost threatening the record for single uh, season sack. Uh, Mitch Williams walk off single. He was only three for 16 in his career as a hitter. This was in, I think, like the 15th inning, like four in the morning at the vet. He was the closer for the Phillies. This would be the equivalent of like Craig Kimbrell coming in and getting a, uh, a game-winning single. Uh, number five is the David Bell cycle. Um, he was probably one of the most hated Phillies when I was a kid because he sucked. But he was the most recent cycle in Phillies history until this year when JT Realmuto did it in Arizona. Number four, I have a Flyers thing here. Michael Layton in 2010, he was 16 and five. This is a career backup slash journeyman goaltender, uh, most notably with the Blackhawks. Um, he played a little bit everywhere. He was a hurricane, I think, the year before they got him because Ray Emery got hurt. Brian Boucher got hurt. They were stuck with like Johan Backlund and um, uh, who was the other guy? Uh, Marty Hool. And uh, they signed, I think it was Johan Hedberg, I think was the backup goalie at the end of the season. And um, there was some other guy that got, they signed. Uh, Sebastian Caron, I think, played one game, whatever. Um, but they signed him because they needed a, a goalie. They claimed him off waivers, I think, from Carolina. And he came in and actually just was incredible. 16-5 um, and five with a 9.18 save percentage, 2.48 goals against average, and a shutout in the regular season. And then in the playoffs, he, he actually got hurt toward the end of the season, which is why Brian Boucher was the starter for most of the end of the regular season. The entire Devil series, and then almost the entire uh, series in, um, uh, excuse me, uh, up until game, I think six in the Bruins series. Uh, but I uh, wasn't Michael Layton, eight and three in the playoffs, including I believe game seven of the 
against the Bruins, all four games against the Canadians, three of which were shutouts, all in one series. And then he won two games in the Stanley Cup. Uh, 916 save percentage and a 246 uh, goals against average. Just a, a journeyman that was never really all that good after that, but just a crazy little lightning in a bottle type of deal. Uh, the Michael Carter Williams debut 22 points, 12 assists, seven rebounds, nine steals. He was a first round pick and he won rookie of the year, but I think everybody saw that he was not that good. So that kind of is a little bit of an outlier because he was somewhat touted and he was a pretty good player. But I think after that, he was never really the same. So almost having a quadruple double against the heat the year that the Sixers would end up losing enough games to be the number three pick the following year. So that's up there. Uh, fourth and 26 is number two for me. That's the Freddie Mitchell catch only five touchdowns in his career, really probably the biggest mo- moment of his career. And then he really fell into um, obscurity. And then number one for me in terms of role players with big accomplishments, the Matt stairs home run, which uh, came off of Jonathan Broxton in game five of the 2008 NLCS. Um, I tried to locate the ball when I was in Los Angeles, but I think it's actually still rolling. Uh, that ball was like two thirds of the way up the right field bleachers. So Matt stairs home run. That's also my answer to a moment that gives me chills every time I see it, but that's my 10 and my, t- and my five non Philly, just random a- athletes that you wouldn't expect to have huge accomplishments, but doing it, Steve Pierce, MVP of the world series, Matt Flynn, big game for the Packers, Philip Humber, perfect game, Scooter Jeanette, four home runs, Corey Brewer, 50 point game for my non Philly. Then my Philly list. Kim Batiste, walk-off, Dominic Brown, May th- uh, 2013, Daniel Carcillo, OT goal, Jason Babin, 18 sacks, Mitch Williams, walk-off single, David Bell hitting for the cycle, Michael Layton's entire 2010 run, Michael Carter-Williams' debut, fourth and 26, and then the Matt Stairs home run off Broxton. And that's going to do it uh, for most of this episode. The last couple of things I'm going to talk about real quick are what we are doing going forward. So anybody that follows the pod knows that we do a like uh, a big predictions pod before each of the major seasons. Um, so if all goes well tonight, um, leading into tomorrow, we will have a uh, an episode tomorrow. Uh, Joel and myself will be back at full strength where we will do some position rankings. We're going to knock out tight ends tomorrow. And then on our Monday episode, we'll do wide receivers and running backs. And then next week, we'll do quarterbacks. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, pretty much what happened with the Phillies last week, some more of this news, the Otani stuff. Uh, so Sunday's episode, we'll do, we'll talk the Phillies. We'll revisit our MLB predictions. Uh, we'll talk about Joel's first fantasy team that he's ever drafted, and then we'll do the top 10 tight ends, a little bit more news and notes mixed in there. We'll talk a little bit more about the ballparks. Monday, we're going to do the AFC North and the NFC North. Um, and then we'll do the uh, the running back and wide receiver top 10s. We'll also talk about the South divisions, AFC and NFC. And then next week, uh, whether it's Thursday, Friday, maybe yeah. next weekend, we will touch on uh, the NFC East, the AFC East, and then we'll do our full NFL season predictions. Uh, we're looking to get some guests for the uh, maybe the beginning of the football season. And then we're going to have maybe a little ballpark podcast, if not a ballpark series of podcasts. Um there's a guest that we might have from the family who might come on, who's also hit a bunch of ballparks. I'm up to 13. I think this guy's up to 13 as well, or maybe at 14. Uh, and also uh, some interesting news that I forgot to share earlier. I was actually approached to uh, participate and volunteer a couple stories for a book that uh, this gentleman is writing. I won't say his name just in case he doesn't want it out there yet. Uh, there's a gentleman that reached out to me on Facebook. Uh, who was writing a book about his experience at all the 30 ballparks. He hit all 30 at the end of 2018 when he went to Miami. Um, well, 30 at the time, I think he's up to like 38. He said, 
Um, I've been to 13 active parks, 14, if you count the vet. And uh, he thought the honeymoon story would be an interesting one to add to his book. So he's actually reaching out to other fans and other people that he knows uh, and collecting these anecdotes. And uh, I will be doing an interview for this gentleman for a book that he's writing. And I actually, um, believe it or not, have considered writing a book myself about our ballpark tour and our ballpark experiences. I have a grading system, which is still kind of a work in progress. So I don't want to unveil it just yet. I spoke about it a little bit on my last podcast with Joel, but I will be uh, unveiling a grading system that my wife and I will be using to grade each ballpark and objectively judge all of them, uh, subjectively judge the Citizens Bank Park experience, but objectively ranking ballparks um, top to bottom, whether it be you know the scoreboards, the, the fans, the food, everything you experience at the ballpark. So that's something I will be unveiling in the, the coming weeks. And, you know, I'm just excited. We're back in the fall. Uh, it's my favorite time of the year. It's my family's favorite time of the year. My wife, uh, it's when we got both of our dogs, uh, fall, winter time. Uh, it's when we bought the house. Fall ball starting up for my men's league team uh, as we look for championship number three. Uh, we have football coming back. Baseball is kind of heating up. The Phillies are fun. Thank God. Uh, the Sixers season, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. The Flyers have a little bit of promise, so it, they're actually follow, finally in the right direction. And we're about 10 minutes from kickoff in Navy, Notre Dame. So I want to thank everybody who listened to this solo pod. It's the first I've ever done. Um, I know for a fact my wife did not listen because she doesn't even like when I talk at home. So for her to listen to this, she might actually harm herself listening to it. Uh, not being serious, but... Uh, I want to thank everybody who supports us. Uh, please give us a follow on Instagram at PA Turnpod. Uh, I believe there's a period in there uh, at PA dot Turnpod. Uh, if you'd like to come onto the pod, reach out to myself or Joel, send us an email, PA Turnpod at gmail.com. I want to thank everybody who submitted questions, whether they be in person or on the Instagram story. Um, actually, I have one more question. Um, two more questions. Is Tom Brady going to come back and play for the Niners midseason? Very interesting question. And then uh, a buddy of mine actually submitted a question too that I want to ask Joel about tomorrow. So two more uh, mailbag questions we'll jump into tomorrow. I want to thank everybody who supports us. Thank everybody for listening. Um, and I can't wait to get going for the NFL season. I can't wait to talk to all of you guys going forward. So thank you all very much. Um, if I ever do a solo pod again, hopefully it's better than this one because I don't feel great about it. But hey, got to work out the kink somehow. Thank you, guys. Everybody have a wonderful day and a wonderful weekend. We'll talk to you uh, tomorrow. Thank you very much. Take care now.